welcome to the Charleston Time Machine. I'm Nick Butler, historian at the Charleston County Public Library. The recent publication of a report about the state flag of South Carolina has inspired many citizens to express their displeasure with proposed changes to its design. The Palmetto State has one of the most recognizable flags in the nation, and no one wants to diminish its acknowledged visual appeal. Less familiar, however, are the details of the flag's creation and the meaning of its distinctive crescent and palmetto tree. Today, we'll explore the background of the flags and symbols in early South Carolina that led to the creation of a proud blue banner of hope and resilience. I'd like to preface this program by acknowledging the hard work that went into the production of the recent reports of the South Carolina State Flag Study Committee, which was appointed by the legislature in 2018. Their work has inspired me to gather a number of historical crumbs that I've collected over the years and attempt to weave them into a coherent narrative. A large number of writers have touched on the history of the South Carolina flag over the past two centuries, but I believe I've found a few details and connected a few dots that others have missed. I certainly don't claim to have all of the answers about the history of the state flag, and I believe that a certain amount of mystery will always hang over the decisions that led to its creation in 1775. Despite the lingering ambiguities, however, there is a trail of clues that suggest a thread of continuity and logic behind the design of our famous blue flag. The Heraldic Background The crescent and the palmetto tree on the state flag of South Carolina are symbols rooted in an ancient language of pictographs that arose in Western Europe many centuries ago. In England, the parent nation of South Carolina, this language is usually identified under the term heraldry. Although the people of early Carolina inherited the language and traditions of heraldry from the colony's English roots, the practice was derived from a shared vocabulary of symbols familiar to earlier cultures of Saxons, Danes, Franks, Goths, Romans, Greeks, Phrygians, Egyptians, and others. The art and language of heraldry, complete with its own syntax and vocabulary of symbols and figures, was first applied to the defensive shields carried into battle by warriors, knights, and persons of quality. For this reason, a heraldic design used by a specific individual or family is known as a coat of arms. In the late 15th century, the English monarchy established an office, now called the College of Arms, to collect and regulate the use of heraldic designs among the nobility and their knights. Firearms rendered battle shields superfluous around the turn of the 16th century, and the tradition of designing heraldic shields evolved into a largely ceremonial practice. Possession of an officially recognized coat of arms, once restricted to the highest ranks of English society, became an increasingly desirable status symbol that identified its owner as a member of the genteel class of ladies and gentlemen. The crescent, for example, is an ancient symbol that has been used by many different cultures. 
As its name and shape suggest, the crescent refers to a crescent moon, which forms part of a grouping of heraldic devices known as celestials, including the sun, stars, comets, and so on. The points, or horns, of the crescent normally point upwards, but other orientations have been used in the distant past. A crescent rotated 90 degrees to the viewer's left, the most common variation, resembles a waxing crescent moon, or increscent in Latin, from which we derive the word increasing. Less frequently, the crescent may be turned to the viewer's right, resembling a waning moon, or decrescent, the root of the word decreasing. The infrequently seen upside-down crescent is called a crescent reversed. Whether upright or in the increscent position, the ancient meaning of this heraldic symbol remains constant. The crescent, representing the waxing harvest moon, expresses the hope of increasing prosperity or the hope of future glory. In the words of one heraldic expert writing in 1765, the waxing crescent, quote, signifies the rising of families and even of states, for which reason it is born so by the Turks, end quote. To understand the design and meaning of the state flag of South Carolina, we'll need a few more terms from the arsenal of heraldry and vexillology to inform our narrative. In describing a coat of arms or flag, the background shape and color are known as the escutcheon or field. Onto this field are placed one or more figures called charges and, often, a shape like a chevron or a lozenge known as an ordinary. Because men pass their coat of arms to their sons, the practice of heraldry adopted a visual vocabulary to indicate the sequence of their births. This system of cadency employed various symbols to indicate the first son, second son, and so on, to the ninth male heir. The traditional cadence symbol for the second son, like me, is a crescent, while the symbol for a third son, like George Washington, is a five-pointed star called a mullet, as seen on the flag of the United States of America. I'll mention a few local examples to illustrate these points. The coat of arms borne by the first Lieutenant Governor William Bull of South Carolina, born in 1683, featured a red field with a single charge in the center, a man's arm holding an upright sword. Above this escutcheon appeared a crest featuring a bull. The second Lieutenant Governor William Bull of South Carolina, born in 1719, who was the second son of his father, added a crescent to the field of his coat of arms to indicate his cadency. The design of the coat of arms used by Governor John Rutledge, by contrast, included a white field charged with three red crescents, divided or parted by a chevron all of which was surmounted by a crest featuring an additional red crescent. A large portion of heraldic language was also applied to the design of early flags carried into battle, such as pennons, banners, standards, and ensigns. This parallel practice evolved its own set of rules and customs, the study of which is known today by the Latin term vexillology. 
In the shared language of heraldry and vexillology, all spatial directions are given in Latin and described from the perspective of the person who bears or carries the shield or flag in question. The bearer's right or dexter side is therefore the viewer's left, and the bearer's left or sinister side is the viewer's right. The two uppermost corners of the shield or flag are called cantons. In the design of heraldic shields and flags, the principal charge is normally placed in the center of the field, like the palmetto tree in the state flag of South Carolina, while a subordinate figure commonly appears in the dexter canton, as in the crescent of the state flag. Because the dexter canton is adjacent to the flagstaff, or hoist side of the flag, the symbol or figure in that corner is at least partially visible when the flag is resting in still air. The Common Flag of Colonial South Carolina The ships visiting Charleston in the late 17th century and the fortifications erected here during that era flew the common English flag, which featured a red cross on a white field, known as St. George's Cross. The political union of England and Scotland in 1707 prompted the creation of a new flag for the combined crowns of the new Kingdom of Great Britain. The flag formally adopted at that time combined the Red Cross of St. George with the White Saltire of St. Andrew on a blue field, the product of which became known as the Union Jack. Neither the warships of the Royal Navy nor merchant vessels in private commerce were permitted to fly the plain Union Jack, however, because that flag was considered to be part of the exclusive heraldry of the royal family. Instead, British ships flew what was then known as the Red Ensign, a rectangular red flag with the Union Jack placed in the Dexter Canton, that is, in the upper corner of the field next to the flagstaff. In the American colonies, provincial vessels and provincial fortifications often flew a modified version of the Red Ensign. In Charleston Harbor, between 1707 and 1775, one would have seen a blue version, complete with the Union Jack in the Dexter Canton, flying from the sterns of merchant ships and above the forts and bastions around the harbor. Bishop Roberts' watercolor painting of the Charleston waterfront, created in the mid-1730s and now in the collections of Colonial Williamsburg, clearly depicts a number of these blue ensigns that were not officially recognized by the British government of that era. Roberts's painting, which was engraved in London and published without color in 1739, shows a large blue ensign flying above Granville Bastion at the south end of East Bay Street, but it does not include a depiction of Fort Johnson, because that defensive structure on James Island played a significant role in guarding the harbor during most of the 18th century, however, we can safely assume that a similar blue ensign flew over Fort Johnson in the decades before the American Revolution. Early Crescents in South Carolina 
At the time of the South Carolina tricentennial in 1970, military historian Fitzhugh McMaster stated that the crescent had been used on local militia uniforms as early as 1760, but his assertion was based on flawed information and is not supported by any known documents from that era. Another report of crescents being used in South Carolina pertains to an event that allegedly took place on James Island in October 1765, but was first described in 1821 by former Governor John Drayton in the published memoirs of his late father, William Henry Drayton. In this story, which took place during the Stamp Act crisis of 1765, a group of unidentified volunteers from the local population infiltrated Fort Johnson on James Island under the cover of darkness and hoisted a new flag up the fort's flagstaff. Drayton described the banner as, quote, a flag showing a blue field with three white crescents, which the volunteers had brought with them for the purpose, end quote. The symbolic meaning of the crescents and their arrangement on this flag is unclear, however, and the story of its brief appearance in 1765 was not described in any other contemporary source. Considering that this event took place during the meeting of the first Stamp Act Congress in New York, however, it is possible that the three crescents might have represented the three delegates from South Carolina attending that meeting. Christopher Gadsden, Thomas Lynch, and Edward Rutledge. A more concrete use of the crescent symbol appeared in one of the Charleston newspapers in the spring of 1773, when Lieutenant Governor William Bull authorized the creation of a new militia company of light infantry. The new unit, commanded by Captain McCartan Campbell, was actually the second light infantry company created in Charleston and the 8th Company in the Urban Militia Regiment, then commanded by Colonel Charles Pinckney. According to a newspaper report of the company's proposed uniform, published in May 1773, the new light infantrymen were to wear, quote, small beaver caps with black feathers and a silver crescent on the front of the cap inscribed Pro Patria, which means For My Country. Two years later, in the spring of 1775, South Carolina and the other colonies to the north began to break free from the political control of Great Britain. Fear of an impending military clash inspired an unofficial legislative body, calling itself the South Carolina Provincial Congress, to form a functioning shadow government. That June, the Provincial Congress established a Council of Safety to hold executive power and authorized the creation of several new regiments of provincial troops. According to reliable contemporary sources, the uniforms for these troops, or at least of the 1st and 2nd regiments, included a silver crescent on the front of their caps. This feature was likely inspired by the crescents worn by the Charleston Light Infantry in 1773, and, like that earlier model, the cap crescents of the new regiments were allegedly inscribed with a motto, the word liberty. We'll return to this motto and crescent theme shortly. The Origin of the Crescent Flag in 1775 
During the early morning hours of September 15, 1775, a detachment from the South Carolina 2nd Regiment captured Fort Johnson on James Island without resistance. In the course of the following week, other companies from both the 1st and 2nd Regiments moved across Charleston Harbor and encamped around the fort. Here, I'll let William Moultrie tell his famous story about the creation of South Carolina's state flag. At that moment, Colonel Moultrie was in command of both the 1st and 2nd Regiments, as Christopher Gadsden, Colonel of the 1st Regiment, was then in Philadelphia attending the Continental Congress. In his memoirs, published in 1802, Moultrie recalled the creation of the state flag in the following words. Quote, A little time after we were in possession of Fort Johnson, that is, in late September or October of 1775, it was thought necessary to have a flag for the purpose of signals. As there was no national or state flag at that time, I was desired by the Council of Safety to have one made, upon which, as the state troops were clothed in blue, and the fort was garrisoned by the 1st and 2nd Regiments, who wore a silver crescent on the front of their caps, I had a large blue flag made with a crescent in the Dexter corner, to be in uniform with the troops. This was the first American flag which was displayed in South Carolina. End quote. William Moultrie's brief account of the flag's creation roots the story to a specific time and place, but his memoir leaves other questions unanswered. He did not offer any explanation of the crescent's meaning, nor did he mention whether the word liberty appeared on the flag, and if so, where on the blue field it was placed. Neither did Moultrie articulate the orientation of the crescent on the flag. Did its horns point upwards, or did it point to the viewer's left as an in-crescent? We'll leave these questions for a moment and continue our narrative. Funding for the new provincial regiments and shadow government required lots of capital, so the South Carolina Provincial Congress began issuing paper money in the early months of the Revolution. On November 15, 1775, apparently just a few days or weeks after William Moultrie created his famous flag, the Provincial Congress in Charleston authorized the printing of paper bills in various denominations. The newly engraved note for £2.10 shillings current money of South Carolina, a copy of which survives at the University of Notre Dame, includes a prominent image of a crescent below two crossed sabers, all surmounted by the Latin motto Pro Libertate, for liberty. This small paper image seems to confirm the use of the crescent in conjunction with the word liberty that is alleged to have appeared on both the caps of William Moultrie's 2nd Regiment and the blue flag he created in the autumn of 1775. Whether the physical relationship of the crescent and the word liberty on the flag matched this paper bill remains unclear for the moment, however. Moultrie's flag with the crescent might have been novel, but the use of blue cloth for flags was not. As I mentioned earlier, sailing vessels and fortifications in Charleston Harbor had been flying blue flags for decades before the beginning of the American Revolution. 
In early 1776, for example, the South Carolina Council of Safety asked William Moultrie and the other regimental commanders in Charleston Harbor to devise a system of signals to communicate information between the various forts and observers in the town. On March 9th, Colonel Christopher Gadsden distributed instructions for the proposed system to all units in the area. If one of the coastal lookouts observed a coastal schooner or sloop approaching Charleston Harbor, Fort Johnson was ordered, quote, to hoist the old common blue fort flag, or jack, end quote. If an enemy warship appeared on the coast, however, they would hoist the new provincial flag. From this description of orders issued in early 1776, we might extrapolate a new theory. William Moultrie's decision to use blue cloth to create a provincial flag was probably inspired by more than a desire to be in uniform with the color of the jackets worn by his troops. The flag he created in late 1775 also represented a rather simple modification of a traditional banner. The quote-unquote old common blue fort flag mentioned in 1776 was likely the blue ensign familiar to generations of Charlestonians since the Union of England and Scotland in 1707. By replacing the Union Jack in the flag's Dexter Canton with a single white crescent, Moultrie merged a local vexillological tradition with an ancient heraldic symbol. The result was a unique and attractive banner that represented a budding new province endowed with great hopes for rising success. It is lamentable that neither William Moultrie nor any of his contemporaries articulated their understanding of the Crescent's symbolic meaning. Perhaps the educated men and women of South Carolina, imbued with a better understanding of English heraldic traditions than later generations, pointed to the new flag flying over the forts in Charleston Harbor and understood immediately its symbolism. More in touch with the seasonal cycles of agriculture than 21st century spectators, they might have recognized the sickle-shaped crescent as an ancient reference to the harvest moon and its traditional message of hope for an abundant future. In John Drayton's 1821 publication of his father's memoirs, the son included a footnote that suggests such an understanding. Reflecting on the coincidence of a crescent flag flying over Fort Johnson in the autumn of 1765 and then again in the autumn of 1775, Drayton noted that it was, quote, as if the crescent indicated increasing good fortune to the American cause, end quote. The Edition of the Palmetto Tree in 1776 Copies of South Carolina's new provincial flag followed Colonel William Moultrie from Fort Johnson in 1775 to the unfinished Palmetto Log Fort constructed on Sullivan's Island in the spring of 1776. It flew proudly above the fort's spongy ramparts during the ferocious Battle of June 28th, when a squadron of the British Navy under the command of Sir Peter Parker failed to batter their way into Charleston Harbor. Two days after their humiliating failure, a British artillery officer named Thomas James completed a sketch of the resilient American fort and its novel flag, 
and presented his work to Commodore Parker. Parker forwarded the sketch to his superiors in London, and a copy was engraved for publication that August. The flag in William Faden's engraving, which you can see on the website of the Boston Public Library, is rather too small to see clearly. But the crescent flag is clearly visible in Colonel James's original sketch, which survives in the collections of the National Archive in suburban London. Thomas James's illustration of the South Carolina flag, made on June 30, 1776, clearly depicts a plain rectangular banner, although he did not indicate its color. Near the flagstaff appears a proportionately large in-crescent, that is, a crescent tilted on its side so that the horns point to the viewer's left. Although this sketch is the earliest known depiction of South Carolina's state flag, we cannot necessarily regard it as completely accurate. Colonel James viewed the flag from a distance, probably through a spyglass, and observed it from the deck of a moving ship during the course of a smoke-filled battle, and departed from the scene a few days later. He might have drawn it precisely as he saw it, as a normal in-crescent that he might have seen in traditional heraldry. Perhaps coincidentally, perhaps not, a similar in-crescent appears on a paper note for 10 shillings in South Carolina currency that the nascent state government printed in April 1778. That valuable artifact, also held by the University of Notre Dame, includes both an image of a palmetto tree with Fort Moultrie in the background and a left-tilted in-crescent surrounded by florid ornamentation. In contrast to the in-crescents depicted by Thomas James in 1776 and the ten-shilling note of 1778, South Carolinians of the late 18th century and early 19th century remembered the original state flag as a plain blue banner with an upward-tilting crescent. Visual representations of this device from the years following the American Revolution are now scarce, but veterans of the war apparently informed their children and grandchildren of the Crescent's correct orientation, and the Palmetto Society paraded the famous flag every summer from 1777 onward. South Carolina lawyer and artist John Blake White, who was born in 1781, for example, was one of many men who passed along valuable stories of the Revolution that might have otherwise been lost. White's 1826 painting of the Battle of Sullivan's Island, created to commemorate the 50th anniversary of that event, depicts Sergeant William Jasper raising the provincial flag above the Palmetto Log Fort. A close inspection of the painting, which now hangs in the halls of the United States Senate, reveals an upturned white crescent in which we might discern a series of letters spelling the word liberty. The State Flag of South Carolina In the aftermath of the Battle of Sullivan's Island in 1776, South Carolinians apparently began a tradition of adding an image of an upright palmetto tree in the center of the blue field of the state's unofficial flag. Few representations of this palmetto flag, as it became known, have survived from the first half of the 19th century, but the numerous references to it found in surviving newspapers suggest that it was a common design. 
In contrast to the elusive crescent, the symbolism of the palmetto tree is rather obvious. The resilient trunk of the humble and ubiquitous palmetto contributed to the American success on the 28th of June, 1776, and the tree merited a place of honor on the state's traditional but unofficial heraldic banner. As state archivist Wilma Waits noted in her 1985 essay about the history of the state banner, Interest in South Carolina's palmetto flag surged in the early 1830s during a period of intense public debate over the right of individual states to reject or nullify federal laws. The blue flag created by William Moultrie in 1775 and its iconic palmetto tree entered the visual vocabulary of men and women beyond the palmetto state during the second quarter of the 19th century, but it remained an unofficial banner. After South Carolina formally seceded from the Federal Union in December 1860, however, the government of this small, independent nation recognized the need for an official flag. Legislators meeting in Columbia debated various color schemes in January 1861, but everyone participating in the conversation agreed on its basic design. Moultrie's blue field with a white crescent in the Dexter Canton remained intact, although the intended orientation of the crescent is somewhat ambiguous, and the added palmetto occupied the place of honor in the center of the field. On January 28, 1861, after considering many colorful options, the South Carolina General Assembly officially adopted the following design, quote, Resolved that from and after the adoption of these resolutions, a national flag or ensign of South Carolina shall be blue with a white palmetto upright in the center thereof and a white increscent in the upper flagstaff corner of the flag. End quote. Note that the resolution of January 1861 specified the use of an in-crescent rather than a crescent in the official design of the state flag. Our knowledge of heraldic traditions informs us of the difference between these two terms, but it remains unclear whether the legislators acting in 1861 intended the horns of the state crescent to point upwards or to be rotated 90 degrees as a traditional increscent. Both the direction of the horns and the meaning they implied were clarified a few weeks later by General James Simmons in Charleston. Speaking at an event held to commemorate George Washington's birthday on February 22nd, General Simmons congratulated the Washington Light Infantry on the receipt of a new silk banner made by a young lady of distinction. His speech, published in the local newspaper on the day following, provided a valuable description of the colors and qualities of the new flag. In the upper corner near the flagstaff, said Simmons, the increscent joyously turns her horns to heaven, gratefully to receive her promised bounties. Revisiting the flag design in the 20th century. Considering the text of the 1861 legislative resolution and the 1861 speech of James Simmons and various visual depictions of the state flag created both during and after the American Civil War, 
It would appear that many South Carolinians alive during the second half of the 19th century were not familiar with the traditional distinction between the Latin heraldic terms crescent and increscent. Few people paid any attention to this small detail, however, as the flag's design was rooted in public memory that extended back more than a century. The matter was of no real consequence until the early years of the 20th century, when a patriotic effort to promote state flag education once again scrutinized its design. In the summer of 1909, Governor Martin Frederick Ansel initiated a statewide campaign to raise awareness of South Carolina's flag. The governor and his staff were preparing for two high-profile events on the horizon, the presentation of a silver service to the battleship USS South Carolina and the unveiling of a Calhoun statue at the U.S. Capitol, and needed a handsome silk flag to display at these state-sponsored events. Ansel, the son of German immigrants, consulted with Alexander Sally, the secretary of the South Carolina Historical Commission, now the State Department of Archives and History. Both men learned that state flags were rare and rather expensive because they had to be made to order. Furthermore, Ansel discovered that few schoolchildren in South Carolina could recognize the state's flag. The state of North Carolina had recently passed an act to promote flag education, and the governor of her southern neighbor wanted to follow her example. While Martin Ansel campaigned to increase the production and distribution of flags around the Palmetto State, Mr. Sally studied its history to confirm the flag's proper dimensions, design, and colors. The flag campaign of 1909 inspired two developments of lasting duration. The first legacy of Governor Ansel's promotional effort was the creation of a law mandating the flag's presence across South Carolina. In an act to provide for the display of the state flag over public buildings, ratified on February 26, 1910, the state legislature directed, quote, that the state flag shall be displayed daily, except in rainy weather, from a staff upon the state house and every courthouse, one building of the state university and each of the state colleges, and upon every public school building, except when the school is closed during vacation, end quote. The second legacy of the 1909 campaign was far more subtle, but graphically important. Governor Ansel charged Alexander Sally with the duty of verifying the proper design and colors of the state flag. The design he endorsed for official use, and which remains in use today, includes a crescent tilted approximately 45 degrees to the left of vertical. To my knowledge, Sally did not articulate a reason for this modification, but I have a theory of its origin. In the course of his historical research in 1909, Alexander Sally reviewed much of the same body of evidence that I've summarized in this podcast, including the design resolution adopted in January 1861. As an erudite and fastidious researcher who was criticized on occasion for being a bit short-sighted, I suspect Sally may have become fixated on a contradiction embedded within the state's vexillological tradition. 
Having been raised in South Carolina in the aftermath of the Civil War, he was familiar with the blue palmetto flag with the upturned white crescent in the Dexter corner. The resolution adopted by the state legislature in 1861 specified the use of an in-crescent, however, and the precise meaning of that ancient term might have troubled Mr. Sally. The official design of 1861 called for a crescent rotated 90 degrees to the left, its horns pointing towards the hoist, or flagstaff, while the state flags displayed in Sally's lifetime consistently included an upturned crescent with its horns pointing skyward. I suspect, but currently have no proof, that Alexander Sally resolved this graphical conundrum by splitting the difference. By rotating the crescent 45 degrees to the left of vertical, Sally skewed slightly the traditional orientation and nearly delivered the in-crescent specified by the legislature in 1861. The State Flag of the Future By the turn of the 21st century, the state flag of South Carolina had advanced from an obscure provincial banner to one of the most, if not the most, recognizable flags in the United States. The familiar blue flag can be found in every public building and school across the Palmetto State, and it's now fairly easy to purchase reproductions of varying qualities. Inconsistencies in color, shape, and other graphical details persist, however, so in 2018, the state legislature appointed a committee to study the flag's design history and to make recommendations. The committee studied the evolution of the state flag from 1775 through the 20th century, but focused solely on the design, including its color, the shape of the palmetto, and the orientation of the crescent. You can read their conclusions by visiting the website of the South Carolina State Legislature. I believe the South Carolina State Flag Study Committee did an excellent job of determining the proper shade of blue for the state's principal field. Drawing on the expertise of others, the committee selected a very specific hue that reflects both the state's British roots and the legacy of local indigo production in the 18th century. See episode number 124 for more information about that topic. The study group also decided to retain Alexander Sally's tilted crescent, although they did not explore the contrasting definitions of the terms crescent and increscent. Since the publication of the committee's initial report in March 2020, many South Carolinians have expressed displeasure with the appearance of the palmetto tree in their recommended design. In response, the committee published an addendum in January 2021 offering two additional design options. The public has largely criticized these designs as well, and I suspect we'll be hearing more about modifications to the state flag in the coming months. My purpose in reviewing three centuries of flag history in South Carolina was not to upstage the very capable State Flag Study Committee, chaired by my old friend Dr. Eric Emerson, but simply to provide additional context for the symbols that we now take for granted on that familiar banner. The use of a blue field in the South Carolina flag in 1775 was not a self-conscious expression of the state's indigo culture, but simply the continuation of a long-standing tradition of flying British ensigns in Charleston Harbor. 
The Union Jack, placed in the Dexter Canton of the old common blue fort flag, was replaced by a single white crescent to represent the modest hope for a brighter future. The upright palmetto tree, added unofficially in 1776, embodies the spirit of resilience that empowers all South Carolinians to persevere in the face of adversity. In short, I believe this distinctive state flag delivers a fitting message to all who view it and visit the Palmetto State. These silent symbols echo the Latin text of the state's official motto, adopted more than two centuries ago, Dum Spiro Sparrow, While I Breathe, I Hope. Charleston County Public Library is your home for local history. To explore our resources and programs, and to read an illustrated transcript of this podcast, point your web browser to ccpl.org. Thanks for listening to the Charleston Time Machine. This is Nick Butler, and I'll see you in the future.